Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would turn in your Bibles there, 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, Paul says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be glory, or rather, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. We read that line, that doxology. Uh, We might have expected that the letter would be over. We read that last week. It kind of seems like a fitting end to the letter, right? After all of the warnings, after all the instructions that Paul has given to Timothy to to conclude by, by directing Timothy's mind and heart and attention to the greatness and the majesty and the magnificence, the uniqueness of God bringing all of us into a posture of adoration and worship. And you look at 1 Timothy 6 and you realize the letter doesn't end at the end of verse 16, but it keeps going. (laughs) Paul has some final instructions for Timothy as his representative to the Ephesian church. Some people actually, uh, because of the nature of this, have thought, well, Verses 17 and 21 were added later, or they were somehow mixed up. There's some sort of mix-up here, but there's no mix-up. Paul, after directing Timothy's heart to worship the Lord, brings things back to him with a concluding uh, set of instructions. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Uh, Look with me there at verse 17. Paul says to Timothy, "...command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty." nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, guard what uh, what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge." By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we study His Word. Father, again, we come to you this morning and we, are, uh, we come to you in prayer because we are mindful of this fact, that we are sinners. We are wholly uh, inadequate and, and incapable of reading Your Word of understanding it rightly, and most importantly, of, uh, of submitting to it so that our hearts might be changed and we might be brought into line with the truth. We need your grace. We need your spirit to be active and working today <clears throat> here in our midst, bringing the word of God, not just to our minds, but impressing upon us the truth, applying it to our lives showing us where we have failed to obey and showing us the grace by which we may repent and return and be restored and be obedient to you. And Father, I pray that you would do all of these things in us today as we look at and examine these verses. 
I pray that you would use me as I speak, Lord, to bring attention to you, to lift up your word and proclaim it clearly, that you might receive all the glory and praise for what is done here today. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you read these last two paragraphs here of the letter of 1 Timothy, if you're like me, you read these and you think, well, they don't seem to be talking about the same thing. They seem to be not very connected, not have a lot to do with one another. And that doesn't really surprise us because when we come to the end of a letter, oftentimes there'll be some kind of concluding remarks. Maybe uh, Paul, a lot of times with Paul's letters, when we read in the New Testament, he'll, he'll talk about different people that he wants to say hi to and he wants to, to uh, uh, you know, uh, point out specific things. And sometimes he kind, of, he kind of collects together, tosses in a bunch of, of kind of loose statements and ideas that don't really seem to fit together. And so that maybe is what is going on here. And I think a lot of people, when they read the last part, especially because we just had that great doxology it's almost as if Paul, oh, yeah, 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 Timothy, before I go, there's just a couple of things that I want to throw in here. Um, but I'm not convinced that that's the case. Remember that Paul considers himself to be Timothy's mentor. Timothy is his son in the faith. Paul is, is vested in this young man, in training him and equipping him. He has commissioned him to go to Ephesus and perform this ministry of 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 encouraging the church, of strengthening it, of dealing with some of the problems that were there. And so in light of all of that, Paul is not speaking off the cuff. We realize throughout the letter, everything Paul has said is carefully thought out. And it's intentional, specific to the needs of Timothy and the church there in Ephesus that Timothy is ministering to. And so I don't think that even these last lines of the letter are formulaic. They're not something added as an afterthought. These are part of Paul's message that are intentional and carefully planned out. Now, what is the unifying thought here? What is it that brings the whole subject of Timothy's ministry and Ephesus together? Well, in these last uh, two paragraphs... It is the theme or the subject of riches. And specifically, I think Paul has in mind two different types of riches. The first one is material. Wealth, money, possessions, and the temptations and the opportunities that go along with them. The other type of riches is heavenly. It is spiritual and eternal these are two different types of riches. They are different in kind, and that will be clear. But they also call for a different response from us as Christians. One of these is to be guarded and carefully preserved and held on to. The other is to be given away, which, unexpectedly, Paul says, is actually investing for the future. So let's start here this morning with Paul's consideration concerning the two kinds of riches. The first kind that he deals with is earthly riches. The command here is given to Timothy in verse 17. He is the authority that Paul has sent. He represents Paul's authority 
in the church at Ephesus, and he's responsible to teach these principles. Paul says to him, command those. The word command also, really, it's, it's a little bit softer term than that. It doesn't necessarily mean the idea of laying down the law. It has the idea of urging a little bit more. And so it's much more of Timothy encouraging and urging these people to act a certain way. So this is not a heavy-handed thing. This is Timothy regularly reminding and encouraging the rich how they ought to live and use their riches. Now, when Paul speaks of the rich, who do we immediately think of? Well, you know, we might think of people like uh, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and folks like that today. Modern-day billionaires, the numbers, their, their ranks of which have grown dramatically in the last year or so, from what we understand. There is no middle class, though, in the ancient world. And so we have to think a little bit differently about it uh, than we're thinking today. Most of the people in the ancient world, and really throughout most of history, uh, lived at a subsistence level, earning just enough to live and not really much more. And so the rich here, I don't think we can necessarily only think of the, the 1%, so to speak, but really anybody who has more than they need to live. Because there really are only two categories that, that, that the New Testament describes. There's the rich and the poor. There is no middle class. Now, if that's the, the way that Paul is thinking, then that, that means, at least as I look at it, that means that the rich probably includes every one of us here. And if you've lived in the United States your whole life, it includes just about everybody you've ever known. Even people who are living below the poverty line in America are better off than many, if not most, of the people who have ever lived in the history of the world, economically speaking, when it comes to possessions and material wealth. Few of us in this country have to worry about where our next meal is going to come from. We may not have everything we want, but generally speaking, we have everything we need and a little extra or a lot extra. Most of us would fall into the category of rich Christians that Paul is talking about here. So we cannot read a passage like this and dismiss it as not applying to us because we don't consider ourselves to be rich. Now, there are five things that Timothy is supposed to urge us rich Christians about. And each one of them is given in the form of an infinitive. Now, if you remember your, uh, your, your grade school grammar, uh, and I always hate to bring this up, but, you know, it's just what it is. If you remember your grade school grammar, an infinitive is a, a particular kind of construction with the word to plus a verb, right? To eat, to walk, to play. Those are infinitives, right? And that's how Paul describes these instructions. Command those who are rich in this present age not, and then he says, to be haughty. And so he begins with a series of infinitives, five of them. Two of them are negative, things that rich Christians must not do. And the last three are positive, things rich Christians must do. 
So what are they? Well, first of all, he says, do not be proud of your riches. Right? If you have riches, do not be proud. Why are we like this? I don't know either, Eva. That's a great, that's a great response. Why are we like this? Right? If we have more than someone else, we tend to think that makes us better people. That makes us smarter. It makes us more talented. Whatever, something. We, we compare ourselves with others, and if we have more materially, we conclude that makes us better than them. There's a, a status that comes with wealth, and this is not just true in our day and age. It's not just true in our country or our society. This is really a universal experience. You drive a certain brand of car, you live in a certain neighborhood, you wear certain name brand clothes and things like that. And those convey a certain status because of wealth. Right, let me ask a question this might, to, to illustrate it for you. What kind of people live on Martha's Vineyard? Right? You might be able to name a few of them. There's some famous people there. Not people like you and me, though, very much, right? If we ever went to Martha's Vineyard, we'd go, we'd drive around and go, I don't want to stay here. And I go, <laughs> you know, it's just not, that, that's not who we are, right? That's not the status that we live in. But this kind of thinking is pervasive. And we all have a tendency to think like this. Even if the differences aren't as stark as between the folks on Martha's Vineyard and you and I. When I was growing up, I remember uh, looking down on families in our church who lived in trailer parks. I don't know why I did that. We didn't have any money. I mean, I don't know why I looked down. We, we didn't live in a trailer. We lived in a real house, at least in my thinking, and not a mobile home. But we didn't have any money. I'm not sure why I thought we were better than them, but I had a tendency to look at them. Thank you. Had a tendency to look at them and to uh, uh, look down on them because of that. Why is this? But it's easy, isn't it? It's easy for us to become arrogant. It's easy for us to become puffed up and, and to look at others who have less than we do and consider ourselves to be better than them. And Paul recognizes that tendency. That's why he starts off with this. It's not an American problem. It's not a capitalist problem. <laughs> Paul is warning a bunch of people about this danger of arrogance connected to wealth who live in first century Rome, right? The Roman Empire, not a capitalist society, not a, a democracy, not a modern, uh, you know, technological society. I mean, very different cultural setting, and yet Paul warns about this danger. And isn't it foolish isn't it foolish to become proud about having money? There's at least two reasons here uh, that, that we could say that it's foolish to be proud about having money. The first is that whatever wealth or riches we have, where does it come from? Ultimately, you can answer. Where does it come from? Not just Eva that can answer. You can answer too. Yeah. 
It comes from God, right? He's the one who gives us these things. He's the one that gives us riches. And so we, we, we need to recognize that. That should keep us from being proud. But, but the second reason is that ultimately we don't have any control over our wealth. How many people go from being wealthy one day to being poor the next? It happens. And when it does, there's usually nothing that you can do about it. But still, we're tempted to be proud of our wealth. This is foolish and sinful. But Paul goes on. He says, not only command them not to be haughty or proud, but he says, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Do not trust in your riches. Do not trust in your riches if you have them. Paul calls them uncertain riches. He emphasizing, he's emphasizing the fact here that there is no way that you can guarantee to keep your riches once you've gotten them. Money is fickle. The stock market is fickle. Housing markets are not a sure thing. Anybody who lived through 2008 remembers that, right? None of these things are sure things. None of them are guaranteed. Accidents and illnesses come and they destroy people's ability to earn a living. Family crises can take huge toll on wealth and they can put everything we own in jeopardy. Think of the destructive power of divorce and what it does to economically to families. It's extremely destructive. That's just one example. But still, in spite of that, we're tempted to trust in our bank account more than we trust in the Lord. Right? We're, we think this way. As long as I've got something saved for a rainy day, I'll be okay. Or I've got enough insurance, so I'll be okay. The insurance agent has given me a thumbs up, yeah. I can sleep at night. I don't have to worry about what might happen to me because I know I'm covered for the future. Well, those things are important. I'm not, I'm not knocking those things, and please, please understand what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that it's wrong uh, for us to have savings or it's wrong for us to have insurance. Those are wise things that we would do well to have. But the question is we must never trust in them because they could disappear tomorrow without a trace. Then what would we do if we're trusting in those? So what is the alternative to trusting in those things? Well, I heard about a church one time, a number of years ago, a friend told me about, that this church, at the end of the year, this church would, would empty their bank accounts and give away everything they had in all of their accounts to some charity. So they would start the year with a zero balance in all their accounts. Forcing them, they said, to trust the Lord to provide that year for their needs. Well, I get what they're trying to do. I don't think that's the point here. Of what, that's not the solution that Paul offers for sure. Uh, the rich don't need to become poor in order to learn to trust God. That's important. The solution is not to give away everything we have and become poor, so then I won't be tempted to trust in riches. It's not the solution. Paul says instead, he says we need to learn to trust 
in God. And notice what Paul says about him. We are not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now there's a play on words here, and this is one of the, this is one of the times where the play on words actually comes through in translation. Sometimes you don't get that. But if you notice here, notice what he's talked about in verse 17. He talks about those who are rich in this present age. Talks about uncertain riches and God who gives us richly things to enjoy. In the next verse, he's going to talk about being rich in good works. This is, these are all variations of the same term in the, in the Greek language, but they all come through the same way in English as well. And so it's, we kind of see Paul is, is, is kind of really emphasizing here this. That, that we, we who are rich shouldn't trust in our riches, but trust in the God who is rich and gives richly. This is what Homer Kent says. I like the way he sums it up. He says, How foolish to transfer trust from God to riches when God is the one who bestowed the riches. I think this is actually really the same thing that Paul warns about in Romans chapter 1. You go, wait, Romans 1, isn't that talking about like like idolatry and immorality? Yeah, it is. But remember what Paul says in Romans 1. He says there that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But but what does he explain then? He says that what, what mankind has done is exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we worship the creature instead of the creator. I think it's the same thing Paul is warning about here. Don't trust in the riches. Trust in the God who gives the riches. Don't worship the creature, worship the one who made the creature. Don't trust in your riches, trust in the God who bestows them. Now, those are the negative commands, the things that we have to avoid. But there's positive, and, the, and, and as we've noted, the negative and positive always go together. So we do the one by doing the other. We can avoid the pride and we can avoid trusting in riches if we will actively pursue obedience to these next three. The first one is, Paul says, Christians are to do good with them. You've been given riches, do good with them. This is a very general term, this term for good, and it speaks to things that are intrinsically good. And I think what he's essentially saying here is that we as Christians who have been given riches need to use them to live a life that is worthwhile not wasting our days with selfish and evil pursuits. There are a lot of things we can waste our riches on, and Paul would say, don't do that. We need to live for things that are intrinsically good and valuable. We need to make our lives count. And so how do we do that? That's a general statement. The the next is a little bit more specific. He says to Be rich in good works. And this is a different term for good, but it's related, and I think it's probably a synonym here. Paul says, how do we invest our lives in that which is good? We do it by being rich in good works. The the, the idea here is not that we just do a few good things or that we, we do good things when it's convenient 
but that we, uh, we, we make our lives to be characterized by doing these good things. Again, the the same word is used there of God. God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. How does God bless us? He doesn't bless us in a miserly fashion. He blesses us richly. And we, in turn, should then be rich in good works. Good works should be flowing out of us constantly. It ought to be who we are. It ought to be the character of our life. We should use our resources, the rich blessings God has given us, to engage in every kind of good thing we can do. That's what Paul is saying here. He's he's just emphasizing that in every kind and category of life, in every way that you can do good, you should do good. Use your riches to richly bless others. And so it's not just something we do on occasion. It's not just something we do when it's convenient. It's not just something we do when it's expected of us. Christians, especially rich ones like you and me, ought to be the best neighbors and friends because we're constantly going about doing good for others. This really should, this is just living out principles of Scripture. We see things like this in, all throughout, but especially like Proverbs 3.27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. You have an opportunity to do good for someone? That should be the natural thing to do as a Christian. Do it if you can. James says, uh, or, or I'm sorry, Paul says a similar thing in Galatians 6 verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. The only qualification is opportunity. When do you have a chance to do something good? If you have a chance as a Christian, you should do it. That should be the default setting, the default position of our life, to serve and do good for others. That's what Paul's saying here. Be rich in good works. Let this be the character of your life, day in and day out. Be known as a person who is always quick to do good for someone else. Paul gets even more specific then with the the last charge. He says, as he's he's kind of starting with the very generic, let them do good, and then he's working toward the more specific, rich in good works, and then ready to give, willing to share. He says we need to be generous with our riches. Ready to give, willing to share. Be generous and share. Share. Again, we need to emphasize this because so many people read the Bible and they twist this around. The Bible does not ever suggest that riches are wrong. The Bible never suggests that we as Christians, if we own property or if we have wealth, that we should be ashamed of it. Absolutely not. The Bible never says that. In fact, we need to recognize that as God has given us these things richly to enjoy. It's not wrong for us to enjoy the blessings God has given us. It's not wrong for us to have material possessions and wealth. That's a good thing God has given. So the call here is not give away everything and become poor, and that's how you'll be like God. That's how you'll be truly spiritual. That's not at all what Paul says. What does he call us to do? He says, share freely and generously the very things that God has given us to enjoy. 
This, is, this, again, should be our attitude with everything that we have. That I want to give freely. I want to use it generously for the good of others. And I say this, I, I remember when Paulette and I first got married. In fact, we've kind of done this every time we've moved, which for a while there was quite a bit. We were moving place to place. Um, but every place that we lived, even the one-bedroom in-law suite that we lived in for a year and a half, every place that we've lived... We went into that place saying, Lord, this place is yours. Use it. It wasn't much, but use it. Help us to find a way for this place that we're living in, this home, to be a blessing to others, for us to use it for your good, uh, for your glory and for the good of others. And we, we set about to do that, and God has allowed us to do that over and over and over again. Because... It's not about giving those things away. We didn't lose them in the process. We were still enjoying the gifts that God had given, but we were able to share them with others. That's what he's talking about here, sharing generously and freely of the things he has given us. But notice what he says about that. He says, when we do that, this is verse 19, when we are ready to give and willing to share, we are storing up a good foundation for the time to come. This is an investment for eternity. These are, remember, notice back in verse 17, these are those who are rich in the present age. Their material goods are goods of this age, but there is a way for us to use the resources that we have and the riches of this age and invest them for that age that's coming. How do we do that? We give, we're generous. We, we, we do good for others. And in so doing, we invest the riches and resources we have now for the age to come. And notice, Jesus said the same kind of thing, didn't he? Talked about laying up treasure in heaven, not on earth. How we use the riches God has given in this present age will determine the foundation upon which we build for eternity. There's a mixed metaphor here, which generally speaking is a bad thing, but when Paul does it, it's good. Okay. But the mixed metaphor is the, the metaphor of investment and of building a foundation. Paul says we are investing, we are laying up for the time to come. So there's an investment. But then he switches metaphors and says it's a foundation. So that what we are doing with our resources here and now, our money, our time, our homes, our cars, our food, our possessions, our families, all of these riches that God has bestowed on us, what we do with them, when we share them with others, we are building a foundation for eternity, Paul says. That they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, this is a line that could be misunderstood, but we have to understand in the context of everything Paul has said here in this sixth chapter, because he's already said something about uh, something here earlier about laying hold of eternal life in verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. We talked there about Paul talking about salvation and talking about, about uh, coming to grips with the reality of your salvation. But I, again, I'm not exactly sure why they translated this the same way. It's not the same word here for eternal life. And 
For some reason, I think the translation makes it confusing. Might make us think he's talking about salvation here. He's not saying, do good works, use your resources to lay up a foundation so that you can be saved. It's not what he's saying here. Right? You can't earn God's favor by doing good works. No matter how hard you try. Can't be done. But what we do, those of us who have been saved as Christians, we resist the love of money. We resist the idolatry of riches by sharing what we have for the glory of God and the good of others. What Paul is talking about here is Christian obedience. He's not talking about earning your way to heaven. And the, the language here is important because he says that, you may, or that they may lay hold on eternal life. The word eternal, though, is not the same word used in verse 12 for eternal life. It's actually the same word that's used back in chapter 5. Just flip back there with me for a second. Chapter 5 and verse 3. Paul says there, honor widows who are really widows. And we, 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 when, we, when we went through that passage, we, we took a minute to emphasize that word really. Because what Paul is saying in the language there of verse 3 is that there are widows who are really widows and there are widows who are not really widows. And the difference isn't whether they've lost their husband or not. The difference is there are some that are really in need and some who have family to take care of them. And those who have family to take care of them, we don't call them real widows in the context of 1 Timothy 5. It's only those who are destitute, those who need help. They're the ones who we classify as the real widows, according to 1 Timothy 5. That's the same word that's used here in 1 Timothy 6. He says, you're going to share the resources you have. You're storing them up for a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on real life. The life that is really living. Have you ever heard somebody say, man, that's really living? Or they'll talk about living the good life. What do you usually think of when you think of the good life? Anything come to your mind? Maybe not having to work? Sleeping in all day? Floating in the pool with a cool drink in your hand? I don't know. Going to a ball game, sitting right behind home plate or at the 50-yard line? You know what Paul would say to that? He would say, that's not living. Real life is eternal life. Real life is not having money or comfort or ease. Real life is what we have in Christ. It's the hope of glory. This is what we're investing in when we serve and share what we have with those in need. Paul says we are taking hold of the real life. This is really living when we live like this. When we take all the things God has given us and we use them for His good or for His glory and for the good of others, rather. That's real life. But the problem for, for Timothy and the people in Ephesus, same problem that we have today. We're too focused on the things of this present age and not nearly focused enough on the things to come. We think really living is about living the good life here. Paul says, no, the real life is that. Invest for that. 
That's really living. Now this then brings us to the last part of the, of the, the passage here that we've got to talk about, and that is considerations of eternal riches. Concerning eternal riches, because here's where Paul then begins to talk about eternal riches, the real thing here. Not earthly riches, the things that fade away, the things that are stolen, the things that are lost, the things that, as we, we talked about a couple weeks ago, when you get to the end of your life, all of them are given up anyways, because we can't take them with us. Notice verse 20, Paul says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Now he doesn't use the word riches here again, but the word that he uses here and the way that he describes this, that something that is committed to your trust, it certainly can, it suggests a kind of treasure. It's a word that is often used of money deposited in the bank. It's committed to the trust of the banker. And Paul says, Timothy, you have been given a treasure. There has been committed to your trust a certain treasure. That is something, Timothy, you need to guard. And so Paul is really kind of looking at another kind of riches, another kind of treasure. This is a treasure we would call eternal treasure. What is it that was committed to Timothy's trust and must be guarded? Well, it's the truth. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the the doctrines of the Christian life. It's all the things that Paul has taught and instructed Timothy. This expression, by the way, that which is committed to your trust is going to come up again in 2 Timothy a couple times. Because Paul's going to emphasize that, Timothy, you have been given a, a, a trust. God has given you this treasure. But it's far more than earthly riches. It's this truth that you've been given that you're to proclaim and live by. And so the, 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 the eternal riches are the truths of the Christian life. Rooted in the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day and is now ascended to the Father in heaven. And that provides the foundation for everything else in the Christian life. In fact, the very existence of the church at Ephesus, and we could say the church at Elkhorn today, is justified because of this truth that has been passed on from generation to generation, the truth of the gospel and the implications of it that are born out of the New Testament scriptures. This is what, this is what we have received as a treasure. It has been committed to our trust just like it was to Timothy. And Timothy, he is told here to guard it, that is, keep it and preserve it. It is something that must be kept and maintained. We, too, are responsible to guard this trust. These are true and lasting riches that are not limited to this age. These truths and these realities, the gospel and the scriptures that we have, these will not end when we die. We won't give these up. We will go on into eternity holding and proclaiming and professing and learning of these truths. This is a lasting riches. And so there's 
uh, there's a responsibility here for us to preserve and protect these things. But in order to do that, there's two things that we have to reject, Paul says. The first is what he calls empty talk. You see, these riches are far better than the, than the, the, the empty talk, the, the, the controversies and the disputes that make up so much of the world's thinking today. And Paul has already talked about this all through the letter. The, it, most recently in this sixth chapter, verses 4 and 5, when he talks about the, the apostates who are proud, knowing nothing, but are obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. Paul says, useless controversies, foolish and pointless ideas and arguments, these are things that as Christians we must reject. The truth is far better and far more important. You know, there's always a temptation to become distracted by things that are not the gospel and not the truth of the Word of God. There are all sorts of ideas that are trying to pull us away from that. And every few years, there's some new idea or a new set of ideas, new philosophy, new thing that comes up in the church and creates a stir. And it can be easy to get caught up in those things and, and overly concerned about them. But a lot of times, they pass on very quickly. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, how many of you remember a book that was written, this has been a few years, not that many years, but a few years ago, a book that was written by Dan Brown called The Da Vinci Code. How many of you remember The Da Vinci Code when it came out? Anybody read it? Okay, one other than me. Okay, two people read it. Okay, not very many of us. Um, I remember when The Da Vinci Code came out and it was released and it caused quite a stir uh, among Christians, didn't it? Because The Da Vinci Code has, a, it offers an alternate theory of the history of Christianity. Uh, Dan Brown, in this novel that he writes, he, he conjures up this, this uh, alternate theory of the the uh, relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene that resulted in an actual child, and there's a bloodline of Jesus and all these things that are preserved. And, and so this whole, this whole thing, okay? And a lot of Christians were, were up in arms about it. In fact, they were writing books about it to debunk the claims of this novel. And they were doing studies, and they were doing all sorts of presentations and all these different things about the Da Vinci Code. And uh, trying to refute... Dan Brown's presentation. I even remember Christians who were warning other Christians not to read the book because they were concerned that it might, you know, carry them away into apostasy. Oh, Harry Potter, there's another good example. I didn't think, I didn't get to that one, but I was thinking Harry Potter was really before, or was after my time, so I didn't really get into that um, until later. But uh, this happens, doesn't it? Now, here's the question I want to ask you. When was the last time that you heard someone worrying about the Da Vinci Code in the church? So what do you think is going to happen to the hot-button issues of 2021 that people are so up in arms about today, five years from now, ten years from now? How many of them are going to continue to be concerns? My point is not to dismiss these issues. There are times where we must speak and stand in opposition to, uh, to falsehood. And we must oppose uh, philosophies and ideas that are wrong. I'm not dismissing that entirely. But what I'm saying is this. It's possible for us as Christians to get so caught up in the current issue that everything is 
This, this current problem in the church is everything. And we can lose sight of the fact that we're actually supposed to simply be reading and studying and knowing the Word of God and teaching the truth. We can't allow ourselves to get distracted. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy here. Timothy, these issues may be real issues, but dev- never allow them to take your eyes off the Word. Never allow them to take your eyes off the truth. See, I'm not that worried about Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code because I can read the truth. And the best defense against that kind of nonsense is to teach the truth and to get people in the church instructed in the truth and to disciple believers in the truth. And when you do, they will see through that stuff. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes have to refute an argument, but most of our time should be spent focusing on learning and knowing the truth of the Word. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy here. Timothy, don't let yourself get distracted. Christians, don't get distracted by the vain and empty words and the arguments and the controversies that are swirling around us today. Because tomorrow there'll be new ones and these ones will be forgotten. And some of you who've been Christians for a long time, You can think back. Think back to when you were first Christians. What were the big issues that everybody was talking about? And where have those issues gone? Most of those issues aren't issues anymore. Nobody cares about them. Every once in a while I get surprised. I still remember our pastor in New Mexico when he came there and I asked him what was the most, what was the most, uh, the question you were asked most often by churches when he was, when he was visiting and and churches were considering him, and he said the most often asked question was whether or not he believed women should be able to wear pants or not. And that blew me away. It was 2008, and I couldn't believe that that was the biggest question he was asked most often. Um, so sometimes these kind of ridiculous nonsense issues hang around, okay? Um, but now you know my stand on that, okay? It's a ridiculous nonsense issue. Right? Uh, but, but the point is, right, even then, let's just stay focused on the work. Let's just focus on the truth. That's what we should do. Let's hold on to the eternal riches of Christ and not worry about all these other things. Now the second thing that Paul says, in addition to the the, uh, idle babblings that he talks about here, are the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Because the the real treasure of the truth is far better than, than claims to knowledge. It's amazing the things that pass for knowledge these days. We're told to trust the science and believe science as if there were some sort of unchanging body of truth out there in the ether that can settle every question. Of course, real science is always changing. The conclusions of scientists generations ago are today viewed as foolish and sometimes even silly and ridiculous in light of what we now know to be true or think we know. But why do we not learn from this? Why do we fall into the trap of thinking that a scientific consensus today has the weight of bedrock truth? If scientists 100 years ago were completely wrong on some things and we laugh at them today, what will scientists 100 years from now think about what we believe? Again, we should have a little humility here. Unfortunately, in our sinfulness, we don't. This is why, as Christians, we need to guard the deposit of truth that we have received in the Scriptures. We need to avoid the self-contradictory claims of knowledge. 
That's what Paul calls them here. He says, these are, these are uh, it's the antithesis. That's the word that Paul uses here. It's the antithesis of knowledge. It's pseudo-knowledge. It, it professes to be knowledge, but it's not. Because when we claim to know truth apart from faith in Christ and His Word, it inevitably leads to self-contradiction, to foolishness. And Paul says, Timothy, just stay focused on the truth. Stay focused on that deposit that you have received from the Lord. And by His grace, continue on in the faith without straying. This really sums up the message of 1 Timothy. Have you received the true eternal riches from God? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose again for your righteousness? That's what it means to receive this treasure. We receive the truth of the gospel of Christ and then for the rest of our lives, we continue to receive and cherish and treasure this book and the truth that is revealed as we read and study and come to know our Lord through it. Let's not become distracted by our rich blessings or by the present concerns of this age. Let us instead walk in obedience and faith. Let me invite you today to trust in the Lord. If you've never turned to Christ, repented of your sins and trusted in Him, today is your opportunity to know the Lord, to be forgiven of your sins, and to have the hope and the assurance of eternal life. That life to come that Paul talks about. If you trust in Him, He will save you. He will cleanse you and you can begin storing up treasure in heaven. A good foundation for the time to come as you begin to live life that is really life. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word and for the truth that You give us today. Very accurately speaking to our situation and to our circumstances, to our culture, to our society, to our church, to ourselves. Father, we have been blessed richly. But there is danger that we might begin to trust in our riches or become proud of them. Father, I pray that you would help us instead to invest what you've given us for that time to come. Keeping our eyes focused on the, 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 the hope of glory that we have in Christ. And we might live real life today. Not enjoying all the pleasures of this world, the things that everybody says are so important, the things that are so often taken for granted. But living with eternity in view. And I pray you'd help us today to make the most of the time that we have and the resources you've given to us. Every opportunity to do good. Every opportunity to serve. Every opportunity to, uh, to, to glorify and exalt your name. I pray that we would do that. Use us, Lord, as we are obedient to the word today. In Jesus' name, amen.